How are most creators with degrees in creative fields, especially high art, living today? What are some of the unexpected ways they're navigating the world of uncertain arts funding, dwindling local art scenes, and the attention economy? And what might we learn from them? My name is Emma Katrovas, I'm an opera singer turned experimental performer, and I decided to find out, one artist at a time. Each creator I interview is an answer to how to live as an artist today, and there are as many answers as there are artists. If you like the idea behind this podcast, consider subscribing to the newsletter sent out on the 13th of every month. You can find all the relevant links in the description. Here's to being on the verge. And the fish were frightened. So beautiful. Something was off. That much was clear to Riley Smithurst as he followed a typical route to becoming a composer or producer of music. Piano lessons in his native Brisbane, Australia from the age of four, a bachelor's degree in music technology, a master's thesis about the early history of electronic music, and the occasional soundtrack for local theater or short film. In search of funding for indie arts projects, Riley was confronted by the politics of Australian arts funding. He mocked the funding bodies in a short string of articles for online magazines in 2017. Needless to say, he didn't receive any funding. But it's through these articles that I first came across Riley's work. What was off from the start was a paradigm shift. We all know it, the internet. It fundamentally changed how art is distributed and valued and how many jobs are available in the arts. Riley reacted to the predicament posed by the internet in two ways. First, as an artist. He turned away from composing easily digitalizable electronic music towards live performance and unorthodox musical scales that cannot be played by factory-made instruments. Second, to earn a living, Riley now works as an internet researcher for the University of Luxembourg, which means he gets paid to poke holes in the logic of NFTs, the metaverse, and Web3 empowerment fantasies. Riley is very clear about one thing. The internet, as it exists today, is no place for artists. This is something I've been trying to say even before I met Riley, but it's validating for an actual expert to agree. Riley and I talk about the reasons for the strange disbalance between the number of viable career paths for artists and the number of people studying creative disciplines, the absurdities of arts funding, the difference between the Dionysian and the Apollonian approach to creating, artificial scarcity, how regulation may be the only answer to the excesses of the arts market, and Riley's one actionable solution to the predicament posed by the internet, among other things. The signs were already pretty strange. The number of music venues that were closing down in my home city of Brisbane, as opposed to live music venues opening, mm-hmm. it was obvious that the live music scene was on a decline. And that meant that work that you could do as a day job, as a sound engineer, was less available. And likewise, there wasn't really a demand for music to be recorded, even for really crass commercial purposes like advertising because people that just needed to make little 15 to 30 second radio ads Mm -hmm. could buy this pre-made music. That was the start of what we have today. 
were you conscious of this at this point? Were you looking around and like, oh my God, the thing that I'm studying is actually disappearing. On the decline, yeah, Yeah. definitely. Actors were known to have fewer opportunities than in the 80s and 90s. Writers, musicians, and ironically in Australia, the amount of people enrolling at bachelor level for all of these degrees, Mm -hmm. like Bachelor of Fine Arts in Acting, creative writing, music, it had increased and not increased in a subtle way, like dramatically increased. Do you have theories as to why this is? (laughs) There's a funny guy, French guy called Baudrillard, who (laughs) says that when something dies, you have like an Irish wake. Mm -hmm. Do you know know what that is? It's It's like a really over the top funeral. But he phrased it so that it's more like an orgy, like there's a death. And then there's an ecstasy. <laughs> and it's almost like that. The, the creative arts, the industries, they died mm-hmm. in a, you know, like a sensible, measurable way. Mm-hmm. And then there was just this ecstasy of people flooding into these dead fields. Maybe they were hoping secretly that they could revive these dead fields. Maybe they, they wanted to feel like they were part of a narrative, like a restoration narrative. What was, I mean, what, what was your rationale, for example. I like the idea that you could be told that something was on the decline, but then you would witness a change of narrative. I really like this. I would never admit this, but yeah, it was because it was the time of Britney Spears and the Backstreet Boys. And at the time, Australian Idol, you know, those reality TV shows, talent shows, The Voice, Mm -hmm. X Factor, all that stuff. It was brand new. I remember watching season one of those cheesy shows. I remember thinking at that age, there has to be an alternative to this. <laughs> like, but there wasn't, of course. Those shows became way more popular from season one onwards. That's why we're in, what, like season 15 or season 20 now? The bets that I made were completely wrong. So you're looking at pop culture and you're thinking there's got to be something better than this. And surely that's going to be in the academy. Yeah, just any sort of day job type opportunities because I knew well I I didn't know but I figured that I probably couldn't be a teacher which is what most people with a music degree end up doing as a career in Australia that's one way to resolve all of these problems is that you have it becomes a pyramid scheme (laughs) yeah yeah because when funding is cut for schools it's usually the music performing arts and sport departments who have their funding cut but still, there were people, I remember one, one of the lecturers, he mostly did advertising music, like advertising for radio. And there were recordings that he made and produced that he was proud of, jazz albums, even some classical concerts. Uh, but yeah, as a job, he did really cheesy radio ads. And even those opportunities yeah. disappeared. So it's not like I was paying attention to this stuff, thinking, oh, I hope one day I get to record a jingle. It's just when you see even the cheesy stuff become off limits or impossible, that makes the artistic ventures even more extreme. It's almost like the goalposts are being shifted. So even the most debased commercial, (laughs) like sell your soul type career becomes implausible Mm -hmm. at a certain point because music is just, it's ubiquitous. and, And now you can get license free music. But then 
you went into masters and you got a phd <laughs> yeah so because teaching was off limits for me i thought okay i'm pretty good at research and not many musicians really enjoy writing i really love writing it's probably my second favorite thing to do so i thought maybe there's an opportunity for me as a researcher and so that's why i did the postgrad mm -hmm. i wasn't thinking i can buck the trend and be like the 0.001% of Australians that actually become composers. I was thinking that there's funding in academia. Yeah. So maybe I could eventually, as a middle-aged guy, be the 18-year-old's music theory teacher. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people with a composition degree, that's what you end up doing. So tell me about the research that you did as part of your PhD. There was, some really, there was an aspect of it that was particularly interesting where you researched how experimental art gets funded today. Yeah, that was one of the chapters. What was the actual thesis name? The... Th you don't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was just a one-word title, Persevere. But that's that's not very meaningful. Persevere? <laughs> yeah, Persevere. How is that allowed in academia? <laughs> yeah. That's not searchable in a catalogue. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If I tell you about the masters first, it, okay. Makes, okay. it, it makes more okay. sense. So with the master, I focused on 20th century institutions that were founded mostly for recorded or so-called fixed medium sound. So that was places in Paris like mm -hmm. IRCAM and mm -hmm. the GRM. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was pretty interesting and not many people write about these places, even though they're fairly important. The problem with this is that it does push you close to what we now know is digital media. Mm -hmm. So sound recordings being ubiquitous thanks to the internet. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it was analog tape. And so you really, especially if it was multi-channel sound, just like music as a performing art, you had to show up to the GRM studio mm -hmm. where they had not just the mono playback in the 60s or the two stereo speakers, but they would have quadraphonic sound. So just the, the playback technology itself mm -hmm. was scarce. It was not ubiquitous. Yeah. And so there was still a reason to physically right. show up <laughs> to GRM, mm -hmm. like to get on the bus <laughs> in Paris. Yes, and if, for explaining that. People don't get that today. <laughs> yeah, and so if you heard a Pierre Henri piece, for example, mm -hmm. physically in Paris that's recorded, you wouldn't be hearing this in Italy or in the UK. So this made it seem like it was still connected to the world of jazz performance or classical performance. Mm -hmm. But fast forward, now we can digitize all that stuff. So all of the analog stuff, you can digitize it. And anything that's produced now, it's not special in Paris. It, mm -hmm. it can't be, I mean, there are some tiny exceptions. Some people have these crazy acousmatic pieces yeah. where, and you have like acousmonium. This mm -hmm. is like a handful on the planet yeah. and it's like 20 plus speakers. So you have, you have yeah. like a, a hole and you're surrounded mm -hmm. by speakers. It's like there are speakers not just around you and behind mm -hmm. you, but above you as well. Yeah. So that's one way to make digital yeah. music special. But mm -hmm. we're really talking about the fringe of the fringe of the fringe. So nowadays, as soon as something is recorded in Paris or whatever, it is available in Italy, in the UK. So it's lost that, that scarcity and the mm -hmm. thing that gives the initial impression of it being special. And so, of course, now we're all globally competing with each other.
That was Clement Greenberg's definition of kitsch.、Mm -hmm. So when what's the difference between art and kitsch? He said once you have this reproduction ability, and especially this global dissemination ability that we have thanks to the internet. So it's really hard. And once once kitsch becomes so proliferated,、mm -hmm. how do you even assign a market value to the kitsch?、Yeah. Like very quickly, you end up in this situation where something is reproducible. In a perfect way, globally disseminated,、mm -hmm. and its market value, its default, is zero.、Yeah. <laughs> so it didn't take very many decades. This happened、yeah. very, very quickly.、Yeah. So I figured I was making guesses that the internet was a problem back in 2011.、Mm -hmm. I figured so we were a few years into Web two will、right. save、mm -hmm. musicians.、Mm -hmm. So Bandcamp will save musicians,、mm -hmm. and Spotify will be good. So The CD industry is declining, but that doesn't mean that the music industry is declining because anybody can create a Facebook page and say that they're a musician、mm -hmm. and promote their live shows. So don't worry, everything will be fine. So yeah, I, I by the time I finished my masters, I thought I don't really believe in this stuff. I think it is a problem,、mm -hmm. and the decline will probably continue. So with my PhD, the starting point. Was not recorded music that I figured could become kitsch and have a market value of zero by default. So that's a pretty depressing start to a thesis, and I didn't want to bore people with a hundred pages of that sort of thing,、It's、like with just a yeah a story of decline with、Sounds、no alternative. Like something that's just casually placed on like a coffee table in hell, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Someone, someone even told me that. He was like. He was like, you could just give somebody a high fidelity representation of hell. You you could do that, but do you want to? So then I became more interested in the performing tradition again, because at least if you have people in a room, you can still have that feeling or that impression that it's it's special. So I'm back buddies with my ballet dancers and with the opera singers, so we can all pretend you know it's still a 19th century. So that's when I looked into different. Scales, and I turned more to music theorists because they're the ones who study scales and why does the octave sound the way that it does? Why does the perfect fifth sound the way that it does? Why are these intervals ubiquitous across heaps of different cultures? And so I teamed up with a mathematician who designed a new fretboard for string instruments. So I was able to play. These new intervals that I had learnt, I was really starting from scratch.、Mm -hmm. So the whole ultra modernist, like tabula rasa,、mm -hmm. stundenola, whatever the Germans say, like starting from zero,、mm -hmm. I was able to do this because I, I was <laughs> totally ignorant about the normal guitar fretboard.、Yeah. That reintroduces scarcity, and、yeah. you know, I I shouldn't use that word, but at least、mm -hmm. most people will understand then.、Mm -hmm. What I what I mean, if you use an economic term,、mm -hmm. because I can play this new fretboard、mm -hmm. that a colleague designed for me,、mm -hmm. and nobody else can.、Mm -hmm. So the instruments that I had, the physical objects, were closer to the art world.、Mm -hmm. They're one-offs. So I was like, <laughs> I have something that's scarce.
the real problem is how do you have something that's scarce that is also desirable as opposed to just it's scarce for a reason <laughs> because it's eccentric and it's ugly and nobody wants it so this is when it starts to become super fascinating because yeah. you can it's pretty easy to do something that's eccentric for eccentricity's mm -hmm. sake that's pretty much how composition departments operate but when i was learning new musical intervals and hearing these new harmonies. Mm -hmm. And I tried to stick with things that I figured newcomers could eventually come to mm -hmm. appreciate because I'd heard so much evangelizing mm -hmm. from the sound art and electroacoustic worlds mm -hmm. about how dots on paper, that's what they called notation, okay. and note-based music they called lattice-based music. We can just get rid of all of this and we can have things like noises that come from nature and we can have field recordings and we can have noise that's generated by computers mm -hmm. and we can have pitches that slide mm -hmm. in and out so all of this so this is the future and we're all going to get used to it yeah it's almost like they didn't do anything that was generalizable like imagine somebody who's just fiddling away with plugins mm -hmm. and software and they do all sorts of operations mm -hmm. on a sound and then they have their finished product they haven't written down all of the steps. They haven't notated everything that they've done. So the whole idea is that it's non-replicable. There was a Greek theorist called Aristoxenus, and he was really in favor of this approach. So the expert was supposed to have really well-developed hearing so that you could empirically evaluate all sound. So he liked this approach. And so his enemies were the Pythagoreans. They were the people that taught often kids mm -hmm. the ratios mm -hmm. so this is the octave mm -hmm. <laughs> two over one mm -hmm. this is the perfect fifth three over two mm -hmm. so they were the rationalists mm -hmm. so you had the people that were fiddling away with instruments changing the holes that mm -hmm. were drilled in the flutes or the aulos or whatever it was, was called doing it by eye without like measuring they were just kind of fiddling exactly yeah so you had to have an expert with mm -hmm. the good sense mm -hmm. and that's where empiricism i think it literally means like empire of the senses mm -hmm. so you had this like expert like the sensory expert like a connoisseur i guess you'd call it today and that person would say yes you've drilled the, the holes correctly in the flute and the god of the flute music was dionysus so dionysus was all about the senses mm -hmm. so who's the god of the stringed music it was apollo mm -hmm. so apollo is reason or rationality what does rationality have to do with string music ratios like the rational the ratio like the empirical and the sensory mm -hmm. so these two gods of music obviously you know they have some sort of a relationship but they had different cults mm -hmm. so <laughs> the aristoxenus school was typically opposed to the pythagorean school mm -hmm. and so i felt like when i went from my masters to my phd mm -hmm. i was switching completely from the aristoxenus school over to the Pythagoreans. So in a strange way, going back to actual instrument objects and notes, and even modifying when you learn a new interval on an instrument that needs a new fretboard in order to be even manifest in reality, then you can start designing new notation. And people have done this. Mm -hmm. And so it just becomes, there's, there are all these people that are inventing these things that actually work 
together, which I think is almost a miracle about mm -hmm. conventional music, is that mm -hmm. people made instrumental innovations and then they made notation innovations mm -hmm. and then there were extended techniques and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And the whole, it, it was like a network. It, mm -hmm. all, it all operates together. And one thing that put me off about the sound art and composition world is that you have an individual who I called a fetishist before mm -hmm. who has the fetish and then they refine it and then they take it to an extreme and it's not cumulative. Having done that, having gone the way of Apollo, let's say. <laughs> yeah, Nietzsche would be very upset. I'm embarrassed sometimes because it is, this This tends to be what reactionaries do. That they go the way of Apollo? Yeah, or? like we need order. Yeah, order must be restored. Yeah. So how does this tie into your PhD where you were also kind of critiquing the way that experimental art is funded? Yeah, so I had my little reactionary Apollo project. <laughs> And when I looked at the funding, it's, it really seemed dysfunctional. And that, that was the dangerous combination, mm -hmm. was that I, the critical section of the thesis was not very happy about mm -hmm. the funding structures mm -hmm. and the types of music that was being funded. Mm -hmm. And dare I say, it, it's not really, it was not about the music. Mm -hmm. So it was really about how can the funding body show off its moral superiority and that's when it starts to seem oh like really reactionary like this guy is like wanting to restore order and he thinks that the industry is collapsing and like the the internet by being super democratic is bad for art <laughs> and it's like he wants to pretend that this century never happened was this can i just ask was this around the time that you published yeah. the devil's magazine yeah exactly exactly and then you add that on top of it so yeah you, would you say you got cancelled at this point no no i mean <laughs> nobody ever paid attention in the first place <laughs> you have to be pretty big to be cancelled but i just mean that i was flirting with all this stuff knowing what typically what it implies mm -hmm. but i also thought that the funding bodies they really deserved it and more recently there are people like david graeber mm -hmm. on the left who talk about the center's like just desperation to appear morally mm -hmm. superior. Mm -hmm. So you have, he makes fun of the Macrons and the Obamas. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yes, thank you. Now <laughs> I have somebody who's not. A reactionary. Yeah, like a total extremist really crackpot. Yeah. yeah. So since the thesis was completed, the things that I wrote now are, I think, more accepted. I mean, do you see any actual like change happening to the funding structure no i would say it's uh going strong yeah it's <laughs> like they're doubling down okay. if anything because way back in i remember in 2011 that was when there was an international festival of electroacoustic music mm -hmm. and each year they have a theme a special mm -hmm. theme and that was the first time that they had ever chosen sound art for saving the environment. And so the, the point was to attract works that featured recordings of water mm -hmm. and processed water, something to do like ecological sound art. And there was a composer from Canada, Westercamp, 
I think her name was, mm-hmm. she published an article in Organized Sound mm-hmm. about how <laughs> the, the environmental crisis can't be resolved without artists playing not just an important role, but a central <laughs> role. <laughs> so artists are like these messiah or redeemer figures. Mm-hmm. Like you need the artist as Jesus to make the ecological sound art because this is what gives meaning to nature and the the environment itself mm-hmm. and then the meaning trickles down to the audience and then people stop polluting the water <laughs> so i saw all of this stuff for the first time back in 2010-2011 and to answer your question in 2023 has this <laughs> stuff gone away or is it more common i would say it's way more common and this mm-hmm. the ego of the state-funded artist has to be this improver, this world improver. And I don't really think it's about the artist. I still prefer to focus on the funding body mm-hmm. because the funding body says, look at what we've done with your tax dollars. Mm-hmm. We've given it to these virtuous people <laughs> who are saving the environment. It's, it's, it's almost like uh, the church with its charity arm. Mm-hmm. So you have a certain portion of your budget and in Australia, it's really a negligible portion. The arts funding is, you can basically- it's more like the US than it is like Europe, would you say? Yeah, definitely. So it's, it really is, it's such a marginal thing. It's not even controversial. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can just, it's a little budget and you just give it to these people that are literally charity cases. <laughs> and you say, look, they're, they're noble charity cases who are improving the environment. Mm-hmm. So. You're not go- there's not going to be a controversy next week. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go back to my day job because often our arts minister has like a, a second portfolio. Mm-hmm. It's like minister for tourism. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, I've done the arts thing. Now I'm going to go back to talking about how do we get more people at the beach in bikinis. Well, I mean, maybe this is the, the issue also just with administrators choosing this stuff who have a, a kind of like input in, input out kind of mentality. Yeah, there's a thing called the Australia Council and roughly 10 years ago, it was split into silos. Mm -hmm. And artists, I think they had a a pretty good amount of decision-making power about the silo. So you would have a fine arts silo Mm -hmm. and you would have the drama silo and you would have the music silo. Uh, But 10 years ago, they abolished the silos Mm -hmm. and now it's just art, all of it Mm -hmm. in together. And that was one of the things that made the mm-hmm. funding body. That was when they started to ramp up the amount of people that they hired. So the funding body became more self-promotional when they collapsed the silos. Mm-hmm. So they started consulting with fewer artists as, yeah, as judges. Yeah. And they were like, we're helping the world. We're improving society. So it was. It became, in my opinion, much more narcissistic mm-hmm. and preening. Look at the small amount, of, negligible amount of money. We're so noble. Mm-hmm. That's how it's been for the last ten years. And so, was that kind of disappointment what led you eventually to go totally in a different direction and do Web3? <laughs> Not really, because already when I was doing the PhD, there was so much rhetoric about Web2 saving the arts. Mm-hmm. You have to learn all of these marketing buzzwords. Mm-hmm. 
So Web One is the nickname given to the really, really old internet, mm -hmm. where you have very few people who are actually able to publish material on the internet. Mm -hmm. And most people that buy their first dial-up connection in the 90s, mm -hmm. they just read. So yeah. you read material. So Web 2 was supposed to be this amazing democratization of the internet mm -hmm. because YouTube lets you publish video content. Mm -hmm. So you don't just watch videos like on Netflix or whatever. Yeah. You can actually create the videos. So this is how we ended up with these content creators. So it was supposed to be ultra democratic. Mm -hmm. So YouTube would help aspiring filmmakers and MySpace and Facebook and Bandcamp would help aspiring musicians and you would have, I don't know, DeviantArt at the time and later Instagram would help mm -hmm. people that produce images. So designers, photographers, all these people would have careers thanks to these Web2 platforms. But what really happened is you ended up with these tech giants. Mm -hmm. So the democratic era of the internet just led to Facebook becoming worth half a trillion at one point, and then Alphabet, which owns YouTube and Google, it's, I don't know what it's worth at the moment, but I think it's worth over a trillion. You ended up with these big tech companies. And then Web3 comes along and it says that big tech is bad mm -hmm. because it's not democratic. So remember that the thing that led to big tech was promoted as being super democratic because you can publish music on SoundCloud and you can publish videos, blah, blah, blah. And now they're saying, okay, that didn't work out. Uh, so we're gonna do the democratic internet again. There's often a restoration theme. So the internet started off as democratic mm -hmm. when it was just nerds hosting their own servers mm -hmm. in the 90s mm -hmm. and then big tech came along and took over and now we have to re-democratize the internet. The thing that makes web3 really convoluted is that a lot of the developers are obsessed with privacy. Mm -hmm. So they think that the solution to the big tech problem is to prevent data aggregation from even being possible. So Facebook can no, and Google can no longer mm -hmm. spy on your activity. And Spotify can't collect all of your mm -hmm. plays. So there's just no more mass data aggregation. Mm -hmm. But uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. At the moment, it seems like uh, a, a similar story, is that you, you already have these Web 2 titans mm -hmm. that are household names. And then Web 3, is uh, it's produced billionaires yeah. <laughs> already. What is the, their plan? I don't understand. But. Yeah, I guess in a concrete sense, there's, there's already a thing called theater, which is worth billions, and it's supposed to be the decentralized Netflix. And there's Audius that I mentioned to you the right. other day. It's They're supposed to be... basically bankrupt, right? Yeah, the money what, keeps what flowing in. Is that, yeah, that you're like stunned because you came from this world where like a little bit of money was being given to these weird projects and now yeah. you're in this world where a ton of money yeah. is being thrown at it. Why? Who is doing this? Yeah, I'd say the promise of a solution. So seductive. It's incredible how successful these people are. Uh, yeah, so Katy Perry, Nas, Skrillex, they've mm -hmm. invested in Audius. So even though Audius is not a household name mm -hmm. like Spotify, a lot of people know who Katy Perry, Nas, and Skrillex are. And they think that this decentralized platform has the potential to take down Spotify. And That's no come and gone. Yeah, no, pretty much nobody is using it. This was one of the reasons I didn't even bother writing about Audius as a case study because it just seemed like an obvious failure. So I went and looked at 
the art equivalent, which is called OpenSea, which is successful in a purely financial sense. Mm -hmm. Billions of dollars goes through this new platform. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be a platform for digital art. And this is where the whole NFT craze came from. So I thought, (laughs) this is great because at least there's something Mm -hmm. in a crazy speculative market sense. Mm -hmm. And there's you can prove that people are throwing silly amounts of money Mm -hmm. into these objects that are supposed to be the future of digital art. And artists no no longer need a gallerist. Mm -hmm. Just like with Bandcamp, you no longer need a label. Mm -hmm. So even though Web3 is supposed to be completely unlike Web2, it's still copying a lot of the rhetorical points, like it's democratic and you can cut out the middleman, Mm -hmm. the intermediary. You don't need a label anymore. You don't need a manager. You don't need a gallerist. You just go to the platform, OpenSea, and then you have an image and then you sell it as an NFT Mm -hmm. and uh, cross your fingers. I read that article by David Graeber and Mm -hmm. Tabrowski, where they go to the art festival. Another art world, yeah. Yeah, and they they contrast the music industry which is an industry with the art market, mm-hmm. which is much more about the top end, right, right. about mm-hmm. rich people at right. Basel. And the music industry is completely unlike the art market mm-hmm. because it's all about mass marketing. Mm-hmm. So Ed Sheeran and Harry Styles, they need the 2 billion plus mm-hmm. plays. Mm-hmm. Art Basel does not need 2 billion people to be buying whatever they're auctioning. Yeah. Yeah. So they're completely different. Yeah. I agreed with them at that point. Mm-hmm. So sure enough, I think 36% of all items of digital art mm-hmm. on this platform sell for under $50. Mm-hmm. So that was funny, meaning that they're, like, they're worthless, mm-hmm. almost. I mean, it's kids auctioning off photos of whales and like <laughs> stick drawings mm-hmm. in a lot of the... <laughs> I mean, it's so far what people would imagine to be digital art. So this is why it's fun as a researcher, because mm-hmm. people hear about Art Basel mm-hmm. and they hear about an internet contributor, mm-hmm. sorry, a, a competitor, and they think, okay, digital art will be, it'll have some sort of connection to the physical art world. And it doesn't. So the, the highest selling co- collections are actually these little pixelated punks and these cartoon monkeys. Yeah. From that video, the line goes up. Yeah. So they're the, the number one and number two collection. And so that was the finding, was that uh, it actually, it's not working at all for what people would recognize as digital art. Yeah. It's working for these bizarre, algorithmically generated profile picture mm-hmm. collections that operate on scarcity. And this was why I was nervous before when I was talking about bringing back scarcity mm-hmm. to digital media and digital music because this is exactly what the Bored Ape people are doing, the Web3 people are doing. They're saying, I have 10,000 images Mm -hmm. and the tokens are limited to 10,000. So it's almost like a factory pumping out 10,000 items Mm -hmm. that have a unique serial number. You can think of it as like a vinyl record Mm -hmm. with a unique serial number. So then there's scarcity, Mm -hmm. just because of the number. But it's artificial scarcity, quite literally. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just like Nika Dubrovsky and David Graeber talked about. I'm having a child.
how do you interpret the fact that when this free-for-all is created on the internet where supposedly everyone everyone can upload you know anything can happen we're letting the market figure itself out you know and basically uploading is let's say free why isn't it that 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 actually leads to something like some kind of creative boom yeah why how did we end up with pixelated punks i think the cheapest punk or ape at the moment is a hundred thousand us dollars the, the cheapest of these. Yeah, it's it's it becomes exactly it becomes more obscene. So how did we end up with something that is super successful from an ultra minority market perspective? And this was one of the main findings is that, as I said, thirty six percent of items are almost worthless. They sell for fifty dollars or under. I think we worked out that. The top 3%, this is almost like a Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. talking point. Mm -hmm. The top 3% of NFTs account for more than 50% of the trading volume. I, I think it's even more drastic than that. The top 3% might even account for roughly 90% of the trading volume. Yeah. I'll have to go back and check. But whatever, the, the top, the very top of the market mm -hmm. accounts for the majority of the trading volume. The, the capital is concentrated at whatever collection is the most successful. But what, I mean, because this is like a question that I, that I posed also to Nika Dubrovsky, who somehow believes in like the internet as a free space, or she believes in this idea that you can just sort of give people freedom and art will prevail. But why is it that everything ultimately in terms of its value or in terms of, yeah, I mean, in terms of, in this case, like on, on YouTube, the value might just be views and watch time. And here you're actually talking about money. Yeah. Basically, the value of stuff seems to constantly like wait to like the, the maybe the top 3% or something like that. I guess. I mean, if you don't know, you don't know. But that, like that's like the big, to me, that's the big question that like we need to answer <laughs> right now. Yeah, I can only say that my skepticism of the Internet has increased going from web two to web three mm -hmm. and hearing very similar uh, messianic rhetorical pitches about mm -hmm. the internet saving mm -hmm. these collapsed industries because it really seems like the vultures are swooping in and there's actually not that many vultures so <laughs> a tiny number of vultures are doing very well mm -hmm. and that's what i meant by it's successful OpenSea, it only has one serious competitor it's a, another platform called magic eden mm -hmm. so the almost the entire nft market the trading just goes through one company so yeah. we've never had these global markets because in, in the physical era before the internet, mm -hmm. you couldn't get out of bed one day and start mm -hmm. a global business. But OpenSea did exactly that. Mm -hmm. You have the Ethereum blockchain, which is accessible via the internet. So straight away, it's a global ledger that anybody can potentially access. Mm -hmm. And then within two years, they create this platform just for turning images, usually, sometimes little animations, mm -hmm. into tokenized form so people can purchase them. And then they have the vast majority of a brand new global market, just one company. So maybe it comes down to lack of regulation because if you buy things as digital art, you don't even have to go through things like anti-money laundering. 
not yet. They're bringing this in eventually. So to counter all of the democratic stuff and individual empowerment and, you know, all of the, the platitudes and the cliches, I would just say that it's, it's, a, it's a global free-for-all. Mm-hmm. And when you have something that is purely democratic and there's nothing to break up these massive powers in the case of the Web 2 era or now the Web 3 era, mm-hmm. you, you're probably going to have huge fragmentation and lots of tiny players mm-hmm. who sell their content for like zero dollars mm-hmm. or whatever a single Spotify player is worth. Mm-hmm. And then you have a tiny number of players who are <laughs> aggregating the data that is of value to the market. So in either case, you have a huge pool of participants, a global pool of participants, mm-hmm. but the people that are actually benefiting from yeah. this system, uh, you can count on yeah. one or two hands. And you think that regulation is just the only way? Like you have to have a regulating body in order to prevent that? I'm not sure. I mean, that's that's I mean, I way that's outside strong, my yeah, field. I understand. I understand. I understand. But like you know, we're we're all like impacted by these systems. Certainly, anyone who's studying a creative discipline, but certainly by the internet, whether it's Web two, Web three, it sounds like it's basically the same thing. Honestly, like it doesn't sound like a very, a very diff, like radically different concept. Honestly. Yeah, I would say the Silicon Valley mentality yeah. is <laughs> is pretty much the story in yeah. any case. Is there any new platform you think people should be um, on the lookout for? (laughs) No, I think uh, being scared of the internet, like I was back in 2011, it's, yeah, I don't think that that narrative has Mm -hmm. changed. It's just 12 years of that. Mm -hmm. So pretending that we're still in the 19th century in a physical room is probably the best option for now. I can say from experience that Nothing that I have ever uploaded to the internet as a composer. Mm-hmm. So if I go back to, if I forget about being a researcher, mm-hmm. n- none of it was ever worthwhile. And then people say, oh, you're recording an album. And I say, okay, that, that's a charitable way to put it. Thank you for the euphemism. I'm just going to randomly throw 10 recordings onto SoundCloud and it will just be a drop in the ocean. So I hope to get more than 100 clicks. Mm-hmm. which is really not worth the amount of time. So, yeah, I really, nothing that I ever put on the internet was mm-hmm. worthwhile. I'm absolutely certain yeah. of this. And going ahead, would I use something like OpenSea mm-hmm. to sell my album as an NFT? No, because I can't compete with the 10,000 monkey photos <laughs> that are selling for 100K minimum. Yeah. So I'm super confident about this. Mm-hmm. Do not do it. <laughs> Anybody who's listening. One of the, maybe the, the new ideas of Web3 is to break up the internet, right? And create like smaller markets. Because the size thing is the issue. I mean, that's what you're talking about, the centralization, the fact that anyone from anywhere can access it. And it creates these big clumps, you know? But is there any way out of that? Or is, or you, I mean, I guess your answer is just that you have to try to forge something outside of that, artistic communities outside of that. Definitely. Yeah. So what's okay. the problem? Web2. What's the, what's the other problem? Web three as well. Mm-hmm. What do we do about it? Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> no internet. 
<laughs> so actors trying to make do with a local theater company in physical buildings, artists who make one-off objects, not 10,000 algorithmically generated monkeys. Mm-hmm. I mean, it almost sounds like stupid, but mm-hmm. then you're stuck. It's a very conservative solution because it just means mm-hmm. pretending that we're still in the 19th century. So you as a singer, mm-hmm. you'll be singing in concert halls, yeah. reading from notation, mm-hmm. paper. We don't even need we don't even need Sibelius and a printer, mm-hmm. you know, it's and my artist friends like what do they need or, or poets just pen and paper. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if if I was speaking to myself from 12 years ago mm-hmm. and this were the conclusion, do not bother with any of the recorded or Internet mediated stuff. Just try and become a composer mm-hmm. and put a little bit more effort into finding a day job. That doesn't seem like a dead end. Yeah, Yeah, my friends that are still practicing artists and somewhat satisfied, they're just more like the 19th century, which Mm -hmm. is strange because they're not conservative. It's like the internet, they just see it as kitsch. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have one artist friend who he's adamant about this. Mm -hmm. He's like, yeah, it's just it becomes devalued mm-hmm. immediately. And then he says, I don't want my work to be devalued. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by a healthy snobbery. It's not like he's sneering at other groups of people. Mm-hmm. It's just that he has this, he asserts yeah. that the work has value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he doesn't want this wacky, let's say like a sick market structure mm-hmm. to instantly value his work at zero mm-hmm. against a monkey image produced by a machine that's minimum valued at 100K. He doesn't want to be in a system that is anything like that. So the solution is to, yeah, it's the healthy snobbery is to say, no, it just, it really is that bad. Mm -hmm. And the people that are trying to make their way through the internet are, I don't know, I mean, you have to be a video game developer or something, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like you really have to be a computer person. But I mean, the thing is like, in a way you can't turn your back on the internet and you can't just pretend it doesn't exist. Like it's affecting the way people spend their free time. It's affecting the kind of aesthetics they have. It's affecting how they view uh, even temporality, I think, because time moves differently when you're making a movie type thing than when you're making a play type thing. And people don't feel like going out as much because there's just this wealth of entertainment at their fingertips, you know, online. And so much of, of what the value of, of certainly of musical art, of, of, of theater, of this kind of thing, is the gathering aspect of it, is the fact that you're together with a bunch of other people experiencing it together. And it's like how, like, if the, if the world becomes a desert, like a human desert, because the internet is sucking everyone's attention away, <laughs> How are artists supposed to exist in that? Like you can, I mean, yeah, you can develop into a cactus, but what does a cactus look like in the human desert? Yeah, I think (laughs) it is inevitable. Pretending that the 21st century Mm -hmm. didn't happen, it is a doomed strategy, and that's that's yeah, I was aware aware of that, and I, I I've heard my painter friends, they're upset by how out of touch with the present, Mm -hmm. digital media makes their medium appear. Mm -hmm. And I think the performers that I've met within music, they're a little bit more comfortable with this idea. Because imagine you study Baroque recorder or harpsichord. I think that sort of person is perfectly comfortable being perceived as out of touch. Mm -hmm. But but then they're okay with the museum. That's going to somehow support their work. 
Yeah, definitely. And I don't think Shakespearean actors are embarrassed by the fact that they sound old fashioned when they speak. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But same thing. You have an institution that makes this. That sanctifies it. Somehow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's some sort of protection. Yeah. I mean, you told me actually at one point that you feel like you did some of your best work when it was under a state subsidized situation. Right. And was it in Stockholm? Yeah. Do you, do you think that basically it is the nature of arts to, to have to be something a little bit outside of the market and a little bit kind of cushioned and supported by some kind of sanctifying, protective institution? Yeah, that organization that I mentioned was the Stockholm Electronic Music Studio. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it has a history and it involves people like Pierre Schaeffer, a little bit like the GRM, And it's not associated with pop music. Mm -hmm. For some reason, this still has power. What it was doing in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, it still influences what people are able to do now and and what I was able to do. So I knew that it was a space that has been allocated to so-called art music. Mm -hmm. And I was able to produce work. Mm -hmm. This was great for me, but at the same time, Unlike artists or performers, once the work is produced, I had nothing to do with it Mm -hmm. because I can put it on SoundCloud, and I did. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody who's listening can guess now, did it get more or less than 100 listens? Mm -hmm. It got way less. So it's not worth the studio giving me, I think, three months of time Mm -hmm. for an audience, a tiny audience on Mm -hmm. SoundCloud. It's, if you look at the ends, it doesn't justify the means, but at least the means are protected. So it's good for me, but I find it difficult to then advocate that sort of thing to others. Because it has value to you, but you feel it does not have value in terms of the resources that went into it and then the, the value of the actual output to the world. It's, it's not an economic problem. It's just that it's, it was, that space is publicly funded, mm-hmm. but then my work doesn't, it doesn't have right, a public. Right, right. It's divorced mm-hmm. from the public. And that's the part that I don't know how to address that problem. So at least if you have a publicly, like a state-funded art gallery, mm-hmm. and then you have contemporary artists that fill the state-funded gallery with works, and then you have an audience, it just seems less mad. If the state, and I'm not even a citizen of Sweden, mm-hmm. it just seems mad to me that Sweden, Swedish taxpayers, mm-hmm. they own this studio. And I think this is good. It's good that the public owns it. But then you have some guy from Australia just flying in for three months Mm -hmm. and then he produces a work. But the public, there's no connection between what I did and the public. And Mm -hmm. I wish that there was. And for 12 years, I've wished that there was. Mm -hmm. But as I said before, there isn't. So there's never been any connection between something that I've put online Mm -hmm. and what you would consider a healthy audience or a public Mm -hmm. or a public good or some sort of contribution to an aesthetic or artistic tradition. It's a dead end. Yeah, so I just think it's it's better to be either an artist or a performer because yeah. I don't have any anecdote from experience about having a, a connection with the public. For, you're was, thinking about composers specifically now. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Sometimes there are ensembles in Australia that apply for funding and they promise to only play contemporary works. Mm-hmm. And again, this solves the problem because you have performers. And then they promise to travel the country, Mm -hmm. especially to peculiar areas, so outside Mm -hmm. the major cities, 
and then they have audiences mm -hmm. in the plural. And they rack up more listeners than me dumping something mm -hmm. to a global audience. Mm -hmm. So by mm -hmm. playing to the most remote areas, mm -hmm. literally like desert Australia, mm -hmm. they have a bigger audience than I would or anybody who's like me mm -hmm. uploading something to SoundCloud. So again, this is why I'm confident in saying, don't do it. Yeah. It's, it really is pointless. But that that model that you just described with the traveling performers, I mean, that could be something that's also publicly funded. So, I mean, I think that if, if the publicly funded protective institutions kind of focus on outreach, but also avoid that issue with the funding where, it's, where you're only funding the stuff that's purporting to, do, to, to modify minds or to make people recycle or something, <laughs> Um, and you really see it as like the, the institution is a, the, the publicly funded institution is this box in which, you know, the artists have utter freedom. But then the mediation to the public become, is a really important part of that, because I think that a natural kind of almost chemical reaction happens there. Where you, re you get these live reactions, they're not likes, they're not, you know, comments, they're not views, they're not plays. And that's the thing that you feed off as an artist. And I don't think you need to tell artists what to do, that they need to have activist art, but that you do need to like funnel them towards audiences somehow, live audiences, real audiences. So that seems to be like roughly like a, the model, I guess the only hopeful uh, model that I can think of. Yeah, that was the only thing missing from the Stockholm example. Yeah. And essentially it's the, the medium that is the problem. I was working in a recording studio mm -hmm. And then it's the problem that I had with my master's work. Yeah. Once it's in digital form, you can globally disseminate it yeah. and you're a drop in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, that like uh, really sophisticated search engines might like much better search engines than we have today might actually like deal with that issue? I'm not sure because the broader question is how do you engender curiosity in yeah. audiences? So how do you make people want something that at the moment they they don't realize yeah. that they want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's Web3. Not because <laughs> I think that the internet now operates on what do people already want? What questions are they already asking? Yeah. Whereas if you were to take it up a notch, how do you engage them in new questions or new, I don't know, aesthetics? Yeah, without falling into the mm -hmm. bachelor of marketing trap yeah. of just facilitating. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just exploiting people's desires. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you say you're a pessimist in general? I don't think I'm pessimistic, or I'm not more pessimistic than I was 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. One thing that does fascinate me about the Web3 culture. And that popular YouTube video, the line goes up, it mm -hmm. mentions this. It's the, I think he calls it toxic positivity. <laughs> so it's ritualized every day. They say good morning and they have a catchphrase. We're all gonna make it. So we're all invested in this project and don't worry about it, success is guaranteed. Mm -hmm. So I would say I'm, I'm not pessimistic because I, I just never believed in that sort of thing to begin with. But I would say that there is something surprisingly and disturbingly similar among my artist peers, is that they have this similar kind of attitude that just put yourself out there, 
just you know like you're gonna make more of an effort you you uploaded one album to soundcloud that has on average 30 plays you gotta have a second and then you have to have a third and then you have to have a fourth you just gotta keep putting things out there you just haven't reached the breakout point so there's this inevitability of success that and it's it's like this bog standard basic protestant work ethic mm-hmm. like you just keep working and working and working and then eventually you'll get your just desserts mm-hmm. so i'm pes- totally pessimistic in response to that advice because it's mad and it fuels <laughs> this uh bachelor of creating creative writing industry mm-hmm. and the master of creative writing and the doctorate of music technology or composition mm-hmm. so it it is the thing that sucks people into the creative arts education industry that then sets people up for predictable failure. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can just get an economist, any economist to say, should we be encouraging people to go into debt? Because in my country to study at university, you take out debt from the government. So should the government be lending people money so that they can go into debt and then probably end up underemployed mm-hmm. or even unemployed. And the economists would say, no, from the state's perspective, from the public good, this is a terrible strategy. So I, f- I feel like saying, yes, don't upload one album to Bandcamp. Don't upload one album to SoundCloud. Ignore all those people that say you have to do it once, twice, three times, four times. Keep at it. Eventually it'll happen. It's just mad. The whole system is mad. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm actually quite happy to be pessimistic at the moment because I feel I just feel way more in touch with reality so I feel like it's a very healthy pessimism okay I think that's a good place to end <laughs> our conversation with Riley may seem pessimistic but Riley's story is in fact a positive one He still composes music, and he gets to have what he calls revenge by getting paid to write detailed articles on the failures of Web3. You can definitely check out his music on SoundCloud, but that won't make a difference. Instead, support your local live art scene. And if you're in Amsterdam on June 4th, 2023, you can even support Riley by going to a live concert of the microtonal focal organ, which features Riley's music. Here's to being on the verge.